so Gunnar, it, it seems like we haven't talked for like ever. Yeah, uh, for a long time, right? Yeah, yeah, we've had so many uh, episodes in the can, and uh, we we still have. Do we still have more? Uh, no, I think we're. I think the 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 buffer is flushed. Um, okay. I think, yeah, I think this is uh, this is our new. This is this is it. Yeah, yeah. So we're not we're not speaking from the past or the future. Or right. We're not. Yeah. Not we're not time shifting. Yeah. yeah we're not not from the. We're not speaking from the past into or the, the future. future. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. It's just us now. Yeah, we're live right now. Mm-hmm. We're um, recorded live. Not, not recorded, right? Yeah, no, it, yeah, I took a, cause I, so we had to put all these episodes in the can because, uh, cause I, I took a month off. Yeah. Yeah. You were, you had, a you were working on something, weren't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, so we've been thinking about it for a long time and, uh, finally kind of took the time out to actually get it done. Um, so really, really proud of, and really happy with how it turned out. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's been a long time coming, huh? Yeah, yeah, it's been months, months and months and months, uh, almost a year actually. Yeah. Um, and of course, we're talking about the new dgshow.org website. Yeah, yeah, it's finally it's off your uh, blog uh, mm-hmm. and its own its own little standalone thing. So that's great. Yep, exactly. Um, so it's in fact I th- it, the metrics uh, tell me it's actually moving a lot faster. Um, so it looks good. Um, the, it should be easier for folks to navigate the episodes now, which is great. Uh, so I'm I'm really happy with it. Um, oh, and, and while I, while I had taken the time off to do that, also my wife had a baby at the same time, at the same time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I was literally doing a get push as he was being delivered (laughs) as she was pushing. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, uh, so we had our son, uh, his, his name is Soren, Soren Hellickson. Um, and he said, yeah, so he's about a month old Sunday. Um, yeah. Um, and he's doing great. He's a whopper. Uh, I think he's about, he's already about 12 pounds. Yeah. Um, and very nearly sleeping through the night. Um, are you, uh, I'm doing okay. My, my Ingrid, not so much. Um, yeah. she's, you know, she's got that special mother hearing. So every kind of click and, and whir out of him is, uh, he's not a robot, so he doesn't really click and whir. <laughs> every kind of gurgle and, and coo out of him, uh, kind of you know, uh, rouses her from sleep. So she's not sleeping especially well, but, um, all in all, we're doing really, really well, um, and I'm sure many other new fathers can sympathize with me here. I've never gotten so many household chores done uh, as I have in the past month, because um, you are, when you are, when you have a newborn baby, you are in large part superfluous to the actual uh, raising of the baby. Um, there's not a whole lot you have that the baby wants, um, so you got to go busy yourself with making sure people are sleeping and fed and lawns are mowed and um like fixtures installed stuff like that so um it's been good it's been good wow nice. yeah yeah can't wait to see what kind of person he turns into you know yeah well it'll it'll be i'm sure like do you already see traces of yourself and your wife in him uh certainly physical traits um yeah. so my mother tells me that uh that he's got my nose poor guy um and uh possibly my feet um yes. And, uh, anyway, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to, to pick that stuff out and also fun to see him change because they change so fast when they're young. Um, and he goes through these, you know, growth spurts, um, oh, kind yeah. of new details emerge every day. Um, so yeah, it's super great. So what, after nine months, what a relief to finally meet the guy. Yeah, I can imagine. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's been great. Um, so anyway, so, uh, and we'll include, I got baby photos and stuff. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, but uh, what's going on with you? So speaking of things that rhyme with Soren, um, Lauren mm-hmm. has been, um, man, she's had her spring break over the past couple of weeks. And, and it's like, you know, like I, when I was on spring break in school, I would be kicking my feet up and all that. But she did like, I can't even remember all the things she did. Like she did, you know, she did the interview with us. It got pushed out on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, she wrote she co-authored an article about her robotics team for opensource.com. Um, she did a presentation at the Cleveland mini maker fair over the one weekend. And then she did, uh, two weekends worth of robotics competitions. And, uh, at the Cleveland mini maker fair, she met, uh, uh, somebody from NASA is like buddies with this guy. And, and, uh, we're going to go visit, um, there's a, a codathon. I'll have to put a link in the show notes for, uh, the NASA app challenge. Um, and they're, they're having a, like a codathon in Cleveland. So we're going to visit that for a little bit this weekend. And, um, so, and she got a, an ebook, 
article or one of her articles published in an ebook, and then she's also up for opensource.com 2014 People's Choice Award. Um, and the, the voting ends, I think, by the time this goes to air, the voting will have ended. So hopefully everybody's mail-in ballots, you know, the uh, absentee ballots got in. But uh, <laughs> but uh, fingers crossed that she does well. But I'm, I'm excited about that. But she, oh, she's great. been, like, incredibly busy. And it's like I was joking with her that uh, she can't wait to go back to school so she doesn't have to work as hard. <laughs> That's right. Um, That's right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you gotta but, be you gotta be careful there. You're gonna have a you're gonna have a twelve year old burnout. Uh, I know. In just a few months here. <laughs> yeah, she did track too. Um, <laughs> so it's like she did like programming all day and then did like track and or, or vice versa. It's just like nuts. But but I've been doing some other things. Um, uh, like on your like on Windows and on certain Linuxes and on. Um, Mac, there's a thing called F Flux. I don't know if you ever used that. Flux. Yeah, I, I have Flux. I use it all the time. It's uh, it's a wonderful tool. Um, oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. It's, it it adjusts your screen brightness and also the temperature of your screen mm-hmm. um, yep. to match the time of day based on where you are. Um, yeah. So it's it's really nice. It's uh, makes it much easier on the eyes. You know. Um, it, and in fact, you don't really realize how much of a different it make, difference it makes until you, um, until you actually start using it. Um, it really does wonders for eye strain. Yeah. Yeah. Like when you toggle it off and on, you know, and it's, and I think <laughs> it's, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, it, it, it's like looking into the sun and then you turn it on and it's like, oh my gosh, that's nice. And, uh, mm-hmm. but there's a, I found a thing for rel, which will, uh, like no RPM for, for flux, but there, but I found a thing in uh, Apple called Redshift. Which basically does the same thing. So I, I've been using that, and it's been awesome. Oh, very cool. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's great. yeah. Excellent. And uh, yeah, and then I, I came across another thing that just came out was um, there's a, t- a type of reading called spritz um, that is basically it, it, it flashes words on the screen, and then you read them. It's almost like subliminal messaging, um, where it, it'll just rapidly flash the words on the screen, and. Uh, it's you know the theory is is that you could read a lot faster with it um where like people like me who sub vocalize like whenever i'm reading something in my head i'm actually reading it out loud in my head so i'm a really slow reader and it takes me a while to like get through stuff um but i've been using uh, i've been playing with that and i can get up to like from i went from like 150 words a minute to like like 900 um it's like freaky wow and yeah, it's it's like basically like hooking up a fiber optic cable to the back of your head and just like <laughs> pumping all this data in. It's, oh, this is like a Mentats on Dune. I remember this yeah. from the movie. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so uh, there's a thing called Open Spritz where um, – so there's a – I guess there's a company called Spritz that is, has some patent pending technology. But there are other people that just did an open source implementation and I'm, I'm sure they're going to get sued. Um but there's a thing called Open Spritz where um, you could actually do like a bookmarklet or uh, a plugin for Firefox or Chrome, and uh, there's even like an Android app where where um, there are a bunch of Android apps where you could um, do like a send to button where like you could be reading a an article and then you could do a send to and then send it to that Spritz application and then it'll it'll like read it to you in that thing and it's it's like super fast it's really cool huh that's really interesting. Um, is it, and, and it's a surprise to me because, so like the way Spritz works, it's like you said, it's like a reading, it's one word after another in like very rapid succession. So it's almost mm-hmm. like watching like a rotoscope of the, yes. of the, of the words going by. Um, but now all the speed reading kind of techniques that I've seen before have been about like pattern recognition. So you're looking at, you know, uh, you're looking at like bundles of words at a time. Yes. Um, and, and that, and, and in that way you get faster. Um, mm-hmm. but you're, but you're saying that like by preventing your, you from seeing the entire line or an entire sentence, you actually read faster. Yeah. Well, right? and I think it's, you know, the other part is that you're focused on a particular point. So instead of moving your eyes around a page, it's like you are focused on a single point and you like stare at it. And, and the other part is that you got to super duper pay attention or, you know, it's like, it'll, everything will blow past and you like, you don't, you miss it. Um, mm-hmm. so it really forces you to tune out the surroundings and, and it's like, Oh, let's see what's on my phone. And you know, you, you don't get the chance to get distracted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Huh. Yeah. But it is, but it is the way it lays it out too, is it, it doesn't like center justify the word every single time. It actually, it's like the, sometimes it's like 
laid over top like the third letter or the fourth letter and it and it moves around and it's I think it's a way to just get everything mostly in your visual perception but it's meant to um, instead of having you move your eyes around uh, a page it's you're, you're it's meant to like focus on a particular point and so instead of you reading a word left or right and and sub vocalizing it it's like blasted you know, right in the middle, uh, like you're supposed to focus on the middle of the word or like the mm-hmm. third or fourth letter of the word as opposed to reading it left or right. Huh. And I, I think that's why, that's one of the reasons why it's so helpful. Huh. That's really interesting. I got to try that. I got to try that. Yeah. So I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll put a link to all this stuff in the, in the notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Okay. Totally. It's, it's pretty cool. So what, what do we have on, on tap for this week? Uh, so this week we got, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, home storage, mm-hmm. uh, storage at home. Um, and then apparently there's this, uh, kind of fifth column of open source advocates at Microsoft because they just started unloading source code over the last couple of weeks. Um, yeah. so we're going to talk about that. Um, and, uh, <laughs> we had an article or a number of articles about, uh, the Amazon unicorn factory, um, and cloud computing and how kind of large enterprises adapt, adapting to cloud computing. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll talk a bunch about that. Um, we'll talk about my new job, um, mm-hmm. as a father and kind of some of the kind of workflow hacks that I've been playing with while my time off. Um, and, uh, and then finally we're going to, we're going to end with, uh, Georgios Papanikolo, mm-hmm. uh, who is a, uh, a monthly visitor of guinea pigs. Yes. Yes. Mm. So if people want to learn how to spell Papa Niccolo, um, yep. or find links to, uh, to the spritz method, uh, and, or baby pictures or baby pictures for that matter, where, where do mm-hmm. they go? Uh, they want to go to the brand new DG show dot org. So it's D's and Dave G is in Gunner show dot org. That's right. Um, don't forget to vote for us on or rate us on iTunes. Um, mm-hmm. Send us some feedback. Let us know how you like the show. Um, and now with the new website, by the way, Dave, mm-hmm. um, the source code uh, for the website is up on GitHub. Uh, so folks ah. can go on and if, if they find a problem with the CSS or they uh, want to add a feature to the website, um, they can go up on GitHub and uh, send us a pull request. And so at the bottom of the show notes, uh, as usual, we'll find uh, we've got a cutting room floor on these are topics that uh, we wanted to talk about, but we really couldn't find time to. So down in the, in the cutting room floor this week, we've got uh, the disaster of U.S. broadband policy and an excellent article by Susan Crawford, um, who's a legal scholar in this area, talking about why U.S. broadband is so bad, um, mm-hmm. uh, which was really eye-opening for me. Um, and then an article on uh, Amazon Dash. Have you seen this, Dave? I, I, I haven't. Basically, uh, Amazon ships you a barcode scanner, and yeah. you can use it to restock your Amazon order. So you can go through your pantry or your refrigerator, and when you run out of milk, just scan the UPC code, and it adds it to your Amazon shopping cart. It's like a wireless crew kit. Exactly. Yeah, except except it, it's not a disaster. Um, <laughs> uh, and then you, you found a link to some Twilight Zone action figures. Oh, cool. yeah, and they're all black and white. <laughs> that's great that's awesome yeah that's awesome yeah all right uh all right let's get started so dave my drobo ate it right remember this yes yes yeah um and then you but you found an alternative for me yeah so um google drive they they had a fire sale on their storage it's it's like unbelievable it's like 24 bucks a year for 100 gigabytes and 120 a year for a terabyte um it's to me, that's it's like the prices keep going down and down. That's reason for rejoicing. So that's that's pretty exciting. It's, do you think that you're still gonna do the whole Drobo thing, or do you? Or will it reach a point where it's like you'll be like, eh, the heck with it. I'll use um, cloud-based storage and do it. I'll you know let somebody else do it. Yeah, I think until I am super clear on what the rules are for backing up and recovery of the data that I store in there, I'm really just using it as a um, as one of many storage locations, right? Um, mm-hmm. I would never rely entirely on Dropbox or Google Drive, for that matter, to store all my stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Not as not as an archive. Um, mm-hmm. I would use it as a backup or a convenience measure instead. Um, so I, I'm not. And 120 year, 120 year for like a terabyte is that's significant. That's that sounds pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. But also, I'm trying to think about like a terabyte is a lot, and yes. it would take a long time to upload that stuff. A long time yes. to upload that stuff, right? 
Um, yep. I know that I, I recently took all my photos, because uh, now I've got a bunch of baby photos, um, and stuck them in my Dropbox, and that was about 65 gigabytes of uh, photos, and that took wow. about two and a half, yeah, it took about two and a half days. Wow. Um, to get them all, and that's, and that's like 10 years worth of photos, right? So you really, hopefully, only have to do that once, but um, that was a long time. Um, oh, it, it, like you, your baby pictures of you. Yeah, actually, yeah, mine and my I mean it was it was oh, basically okay. every photo thought, every photo yeah. yeah, every photo I've captured in the last 10 years I uploaded okay. to Dropbox. Oh, um, I thought that was like like 64 gigabytes of, of Soren or or you know, uh, terabytes <laughs> or yeah, you know, just like wow, that's <laughs> a lot of pictures. Yeah, so I'm still I, I'm still a lot more comfortable with having a storage solution that's that's on premise and that I can control and that if the, you know, if the house sets fire, I'm going to grab that box and run out the door with it. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's just going to make me feel better. Yeah. Well, for me, though, it's like I'm sort of the opposite where it's like I trust myself even less than, you know, and it's like well, if the house burns down, what if I'm not there to grab the box to run out with it? And so having whether whether you have a copy at home, you, you still need an offsite copy somewhere, whether it's at, you mm -hmm. know, a yeah. parent's house or, or uh, something like that in a safe deposit box somewhere. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I think the answer is both, right? You want mm -hmm. uh, you want something that you can you control, and then also you want as a backup. You know, redundancy doesn't hurt and stuff like this. So um, I think that makes a lot of sense. I've been, and I'm going to put a plea out to folks who are listening. There is a tool that I read about, and we might have even talked about it on the show before. But it is a it's a widget that you uh, that you plug in at home, mm -hmm. and it acts basically as a storage endpoint. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you and I, Dave, could both plug this device in, plug a hard drive mm. into the device, and then we could, it shares storage between us. Yes. Um, so I can use your storage and you can use my storage. Um, and it ensures redundancy across those endpoints, but it is all encrypted. So mm -hmm. while you can provide me storage, you can't actually see what I'm putting on your disk. Yes. Um, and the idea is that if you add more nodes to this, you'd be able to... Um, uh, you know, you could have like a group of friends, everyone backing each other's stuff up, right? Which yes. is kind of the best of both worlds in terms of, um, you know, the redundancy, having control of your own data, and then also, um, uh, and then also having an offsite alternative. Um, mm -hmm. I remember this device. I remember people talking about it, and now for the life of me, it's like ungoogleable. Like I can't find mm. it. Um, so if anybody knows the thing that I'm talking about, uh, let me know. Um, yeah, I, I heard about that on. Um... Back to work. It, they were advertising that there. It was like they were saying it's some sort of cone-shaped storage device or something. Yes. Yeah, that sounds yeah. familiar. And by the way, if folks aren't listening to Back to Work, it is a pretty great show. Mm -hmm. um, once you fast forward through all the comic book talk, it is actually mm -hmm. a useful productivity show. So we'll include a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, but I'm also looking at this uh, Synology. I know a lot of a bunch of nerds use um, Synology uh, disks or I guess NAS devices. Anyway, the, the Synology is similar to Drobo, but it seems like a much more polished experience. And they just added this feature that actually lets you use the Synology box as like a Dropbox mm. type service. Um, so like from your phone, you can actually access all the stuff on your, on your mm. disk at home, um, which seems pretty interesting. Um, anyway, if anybody else has used something like that, yeah. let us know. Um, and uh, I'll do. I'll also do some research and yep. report back. And I know on my end too. Going back to the Google Drive part, is that I haven't mm. gone totally all in with it because there's no Linux client for it. And I, I know that there is a InSync. Uh, there's a company called InSync that will. They do like a an app. I guess that you you can use it sort of like a Dropbox client to talk to Google Drive. But I don't know if anybody's had any experience mm -hmm. with that too. So if people have any feedback and want to. Let us know. That's that's another. Um, I'd love to hear people's thoughts on that too. So, uh, Dave, Goodyear Zeppelin. What's yeah. That about? So we talked about this ooh, a couple months ago, right? About the uh, Zeppelin NT, and uh, so that they're finally um, right. They're in Akron. Um, so they're. I haven't seen it go by my house yet, but um, but they are around. And so I'll I put a link in the show notes for if people want to actually uh see what it looks like and and there's like a video of them putting it together and all that and uh so it's a good year's up one can't remember is, is it like visibly different than the original Goodyear blimp is it um like if you saw it in the sky would you be like oh that's that's obviously the next generation yeah oh yeah um well it's semi-rigid as opposed to like a blimp which just sort of like deflates to nothing 
Um, so it, it does look a little bit like less balloony, like a football shape sort of thing. Um, at least the way I see it. Um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. And it's supposedly quieter okay. too, because one of the one of the big problems with the the previous generation blimps is that they were just like super noisy. You you can actually hear them from like I like I would be at my house. It's super loud, and and like you hear it well before you. It eventually shows up like twenty miles an hour, and so that makes it good for like. Golf. Right, right, right. Um, and is it like a? Are they still using props, or is it like a caterpillar drive, like from Red October? Um, it's it's uh, it's props. It's props. Um, yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. It's NT. It's it's next generation technology center. Uh, piece mm-hmm. of follow up, Dave. In a totally separate. So, um, so in the last episode, or actually the future episode, because this is forty seven. Mm-hmm. The last episode is forty eight. Um. And uh, that was the episode where we talked with Sean Wells about his uh, SCAP security guide yes. project. Um, so we just learned uh, just learned a couple of days ago that uh, SCAP security guide is actually planned for uh, deployment in RHEL 6.6, yeah. which yeah. is great news. That's exciting. And um, yeah, that, that, I think this is a first for us where, where we are giving uh, updates on future episodes that aired previously. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> It's like a whole a whole inception thing. Speaking of being incepted, uh, you heard the news about Heartbleed, this uh, SSL exploit, this open yeah, SSL it's all exploit. Over the um, so apparently, it's yeah, it's everywhere. Um, and everyone and everyone I know who's a systems administrator has spent the morning, um, the, this morning that we're recording, they spent the morning kind of rebuilding certificates and updating software and stuff like this. So um, basically, Open SSL, which is the software that handles the secure website connections, um, has a vulnerability in it, uh, and apparently has had this vulnerability for some time. Uh, a researcher from Google finally found the vulnerability. Um, and the exploit or the consequences of the exploit are pretty mm-hmm. bad. Um, it exposes 64k of private data um, uh, from the exploited wow. machine, um, and so this makes it's yeah, it's bad. It makes everybody vulnerable. Um, it's super good. like I'm seeing hex dumps of people's connections to Yahoo with like Yahoo credentials inside it. I mean, it's bad. Um, so. Uh, the good news, though, is that there is a patch. Um, if you haven't applied it yet, you should absolutely do so. Um, and we'll include a link uh, to a website that will tell you if a particular secure website is uh, mm-hmm. is vulnerable. Um, and so uh, just watching Twitter and stuff uh, today, I'm, it's actually kind of heartening to see the community kind of banding together and um, like holding companies accountable for, uh, you know, having not patched their systems. Um, so anyway, but the patch is out for Red Hat Enterprise Linux, uh, sent to us and the other guys, I don't know. Um, but, uh, we'll include instructions for, um, seeing if you're vulnerable, um, and then, uh, and then how to update that. We'll put all that in the show. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the things that was nice for me is that I opened a shell up this morning and I did uh, yum update info list CVEs and it showed me that all the, Oh, you have a system that's vulnerable to this CV and I didn't update and it was great. So you could actually, you know, that's one of the big things with RAL is being able to search um, vulnerabilities by by CVE number. This particular vulnerability is bad because it is in such widespread use. Like everybody uses SSL, right? Um, even like Twitter or Facebook. I mean, using mm-hmm. secure connections to connect to websites is how we keep ourselves safe when we're on stuff like open mm-hmm. Wi-Fi. Um, speaking of which, open Wi-Fi, uh, the uh, Google... Uh, just filed with the Supreme Court. Um, they're in. They're in a case about uh, the Street View cars, um, which those cars run around and everybody sees them with the goofy cameras on top, taking the 360 degree view, so we can all benefit from Google Street View. Uh, but what, what it's also doing is uh, looking for Wi-Fi mm-hmm. networks um, and keeping track of which Wi-Fi stations, which Wi-Fi you know network IDs are in which neighborhoods. So basically. If I see if I'm in a neighborhood and I see three Wi-Fi routers, Google has all that stuff geotagged, so they can say without having to go through a GPS device, it can say, "Oh, you're in this yes. neighborhood because you're connected to or you have access to these these Wi-Fi networks." Um, well, in the EU, they decided that that was illegal and it was you know packet sniffing, um, and it's basically you know they characterized it as like Google spying on people's networks. Um, I'm less convinced that it's like spying because. Uh, the spying that they did was like on open Wi-Fi. I'm not quite sure how you can claim that's private if there was no encryption Mm -hmm. on it. Yeah, like to me, it's, I I think that 
the SSID broadcasting and being able to collect that, it's almost like like street view, like the Google car driving up and down the street to look at house numbers that are on a house. Like so it could be in the street and it could yeah. see the house number. Exactly. Well, why can't it listen on the Wi Fi and pick out an SSID if you're if you choose to broadcast it? Or even better, I mean, if I have, if I have a radio in my window and I'm I got it cranked up to ten and I'm broadcasting it out to the neighborhood, um, if somebody's listening to that to that broadcast out my window, um, nobody would ever say that was an invasion of my mm -hmm. privacy um, to be listening to that radio. But that's exactly what the Wi-Fi yeah. is doing, right? Um, yeah, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. It's complicated. Okay, I got my my blood starting to boil here. Let's move on to uh happy uh, things. Talk happy about something things. That will calm me down. Like like, uh, like happy things. Like like Microsoft releasing yeah, open source. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what what happened there? Um. So Microsoft released the source code. So I first saw the news that they had released the source code to their .NET. So .NET is their their chosen language for uh, stuff. We talked to uh, Langdon is a huge fan of this, as we learned uh, a couple episodes ago. Oh yeah. Yeah, we, we had to bleep that out. He'll be delighted to learn that the .NET compiler is now uh, has now been opened uh, by Microsoft. Um, but you found the news that they have also released the source code for their operating system and for yes. Word. Yes, so uh, yeah, it's been MS-DOS 1.1 and 2.0 and uh, Word for Windows 1.1a. That's so weird. Why would they, Why I don't know why they would do um, that. Well, they donated it to a computer museum. Uh, okay, okay. I mm -hmm. guess that makes sense. But still, why the source code to it? I mean, I suppose you could still donate the binary, yeah. can't you? Yeah. Or just like pull a Windows disk out of a dumpster. Uh -huh. and. Oh, and it makes me wonder what else this computer museum is preserving, right? Um, like, do they have like disks in a dumpster? Like, Well, yeah, it could be a, a historical significance, mm -hmm. right? It's very confusing to me. But, uh, but anyway, good for Microsoft because it seems like mostly with the .NET stuff, less so, I guess, with the OS and Word stuff. But um, for the .NET stuff, they're actually realizing that software development is increasingly being done in the open source fashion. Um, and by having closed tools, they make it less likely that people are actually going to use their stuff. Um, so, uh, which they say explicitly in their, in their, in their announcement. So, um, good for them. Uh, yes. and good for the open source community. Cause now we got a whole, we got a whole nother compiler, uh, that we can crawl around in. So that's great. Yep. Yep. And then, uh, some other open source news is uh, AWS is going around urging developers to uh, scrub GitHub of uh, secret keys. Mm -hmm. It's hard not to draw a parallel between that and the Wi-Fi thing we were just talking about. Um, like, if you, like if you're taking your AWS secret key and putting it up in a GitHub repo, um, you almost get what you deserve, right? It's like putting a password in. It's literally like yeah. putting a password in your source code. Oh, um, yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. And that's, I, you know, we're and. It's like I think about it as when, uh, like, Red Hat buys a company, and then we, it's like, oh, we're going to make that code open source, and it, it does take us like a year or two to actually go through it line by line. Um, and I'm sure one of the reasons why it takes so long is to you know look for things like that. That it's like, do you you know, is is the security done right and all that? Because it's you you can't hide behind a binary, and uh, and as people are starting to, it's like, oh well. GitHub is a, a place, it, it's free, where I could stick my source code in it. But hey, guess what? It's it's open to everybody to look at, too. Um, so you know you can't be putting uh, code uh, around keys in there. And I, I saw in the article that you know people were having like big bills run up uh, by uh, you know people using those keys to um, to do like Bitcoin mining and, and things like that. That's <laughs> that's amazing. What a weird world. Going back to the Microsoft thing, it's like Microsoft is giving with one hand with the uh, the release of these these uh, the source code for these projects, but then taking away with the other because they just they're killing Windows XP, right? Yep, yep, and yeah, they should just open source that. Um, maybe I don't know. Uh, eventually, <laughs> I'm sure they will, um, which will be fun. But yeah, um, but yeah, I saw an article about you know all the people just worrying about you know the almost like this Y2K sort of thing of the, the end of Windows XP. Um, and with all these, I guess, ATMs are based upon Windows XP. And, uh, you know, the, there's an article about ATM operators eyeing Linux as an alternative to Windows XP. Um, but my worry is that, okay, well, it goes end of life but for Windows. but And so it's like, oh, if I get Linux, it's never going to go end of life because it's open source. But I think the thing that, you know, 
people don't realize is that somebody has to support it, um, whether it's a commercial company or it's it's you. Also, so that seemed like that seemed like link bait to me because. Like if you've written your ATM stuff for Windows XP, like how likely is it that you're going to port it over to Linux? Like not very likely, right? Right. Yeah, and I think a lot of this stuff too could be like, it could be an opportunity to retire old hardware and maybe get new ATMs that may be Linux-based. Who knows? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, right, right. I guess that makes sense. But let, let me let me get your take on this. Um, mm -hmm. Would you be interested in a dual boot uh, device that can go between Android and Windows. No. Yeah, I don't even. <laughs> I mean, just I, the the Venn diagram of people who want to run an Android device and people who want to run a Windows device is like null set, right? There's like I don't like unless you're a researcher maybe or uh, oh well maybe like for if you're working for a company and you have to have a Windows device to use the company whatever I don't know no I. I can't imagine a circumstance in which I'd need that. Yeah, and and either way, it looks like Google and Microsoft are out to stop that from happening. Um, but I, I I guess one way would be like you see all these like Chromebooks, and mm -hmm. uh, you know people would be like, oh well, if I have this low end laptop, it could be basically a Chromebook. But if I need to have my Windows fixed to bring up Office or something, I could reboot into. Uh, Windows 8 or a skinny version of Windows 8 to bring up my office document. But like I remember back when I worked at other companies that, you know, it's like, well, you have a Windows laptop and I can I can be sneaky and I could dual boot with Linux. But, you know, the, the pain that would be needed to go back and forth to reboot to go into the other operating system didn't really add a whole lot of value. Um, so it's like I, I never I never really cared for dual boot even many long time ago. Yeah, and especially with the virtualization as an option. Um, it's, yeah, nowadays yeah. there's no, totally no need to dual boot. Yeah. So but, but why do they care? That's what I don't understand. Um, I I wonder if it's because of brand fragmentation. You know, so it's like I don't think Google wants you to buy a Chromebook that can also run Windows, and Microsoft doesn't want you to buy a a Windows laptop that can also run. Uh, you know, the, the Chrome OS or the Google OS or whatever. The other part of it, too, is buttoning down the ecosystem. Like, like take a look at, like, the tablet, like the Nexus 5 or the Nexus 7. Um, it's not meant to be taken apart or modified in any way. It's meant to be a an atomic unit that, that you can't really, it's not meant to be modified and tricked out or dual booted or, you know, change the battery or anything like that. So and I and I think it's you know it's it's a single use uh, appliance sort of thing is what what its goal is and um, I think that's I think one of the reasons why they're doing it too. So in other news, uh, Dave, you know, internal to Red Hat, we've started rolling out um, two-factor authentication for almost everything, mm -hmm. right? Um, so we yep. need to, so we got a password and we got a little key fob that that we need to use, um, which has been by and large been been pretty great and. Uh, major websites like Twitter um, have also, and Google and Dropbox, they also have two-factor authentication, right? Um, uh, so yep. using the like Google Authenticator or the free OTP app on your phone, you can generate a unique code, which will allow you access to these sites. Um, and you found this website, twofactorauth.org, uh, which will actually show you mm -hmm. which sites support two-factor authentication. Yes. Yeah. So, and it's all open source, you know, it's all GitHub based. So you could actually go in, edit the code and, and, uh, you know, do a pull request of, uh, you know, to have your updates submitted and all that. So it's, it's actually pretty nice. It, it lays it all out. Um, when I looked at it a while ago, there were some mistakes in it. Um, but, mm -hmm. uh, um, I'm sure they got fixed by now. Um, but, um, but I'm glad that there's like a website that lists them all. And it also gives you like, a link um, to be able to go back to bother those providers that aren't providing two-factor authentication and to to bug them about it. Oh, that's great! That's fantastic. Yeah. That's for the yeah. It's a one-stop one-stop shop. Yeah, I like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, with the exception of your of talking about Lauren, we haven't mentioned Scratch at all in this episode so far, and yeah. I'm feeling a little uncomfortable. Can you can you help me with that? Yeah, we we need to do that. Um, well, actually, uh, David Sarine uh, helped us with that, where he found a Kickstarter for Scratch Junior, 
um, which uh, it's it's an iPad app um, that they're working on, and it was funded in two days. They expect to have the release uh, this summer, and it's um, it's it, it basically it's like the scratch that people know and love, but it's it's meant to attract an even younger market, um, especially for you know like kids that don't know how to read. Um, and that you know they're, they're used to using a tablet where they could they could drag and drop widgets and stuff like that, and they could write programs. Um, so it's I, I saw um, some screenshots of it of some prototypes and everything, and it looks really cool. I'm excited about it. Makes me think of like uh, makes me think of like a software equivalent of Legos, um, where you, like you don't need to come to it with a bunch of expertise. You can just kind of jump right in and start tinkering. Yeah, and it's al- almost more even more gamified. Um, as far as like, you know, where you could build stuff and it's, it's, you know, where, you know, it's not like, oh, I'm bringing up an editor and I'm writing code and everything. And, and Scratch got away from that by, you know, making it all really clickable. But this even takes it to the next step where it's um, even more uh, approachable for younger kids. All right. Uh, so I've been out of work for, for a month or so. So you're going to have to catch me up on some of the stuff I missed. I saw that um, there was this article in the register about how Cisco's getting cozy with us. Mm hmm. Yep. Yeah, it's a good article that, you know, the article is talking about how um, it's they're working with this with a lot of the different things like like with open daylight, with the, with the uh, networking, um, that's software based um, and even uh, the OpenStack work that we're doing and and uh, KVM and virtualization. And, um, I, you know, the way I look at it is that a lot of times whenever you have an open source software project, if it's like a user space thing, um, it's I'm sure it's really hard to motivate the the hardware providers um, because it's it's abstracted mm-hmm. between whether it's a virtualization layer or um, an operating system layer, and if it's like just purely user space like Firefox or something like that, um, you know the the hardware vendors don't care. Um, whereas if you start thinking about things like virtualization and cloud and KVM and uh, software based networking, um, that's where the hardware providers have a vested interest, but they also may not be, you know, the the most expert uh, people that that can get this stuff accepted upstream. So by working with a an established software provider, um, it's sort of like the that uh, peanut butter and chocolate combination where it's you know the combination is even better where mm-hmm. you have the real world hardware um, and and um, and then with uh, a software company that can help you know, fast track a lot of these changes. Um, and, and it ends up making the software, you know, that it's, you could obviously see the benefit for the hardware manufacturer because it makes their hardware products more easily consumable, but it's also more useful for the, um, the software project as well, because it, it makes that software project a lot more, the potential for it to be a lot more successful. Um, because, you know, more people will mm-hmm. be able to use it and, um, get you know a better ROI out of it because you know they're able to run faster on it or or it's more scalable. Um, so it's it's really exciting. And and it's not just hardware providers that see value in this too. It's also uh, it's also uh, compute providers, uh, cloud computing providers like uh, Google Compute Engine, um, who uh, who just signed up, uh, who are now offering Red Hat Enterprise Linux under our cloud access program, right? Yeah, yeah. So what what is the whole cloud access? Uh, so that's basically it's bring your own license or bring your own subscription. So yeah. um, one of the bummers is that if you've got if you've got an ELA or if you've got a bunch of Red Hat in internal to your organization and you want to go use cloud computing, well, you got to go pay for REL. Uh, sometimes you end up like paying twice because um, mm-hmm. you got to have the stuff out on the cloud and then the stuff that's internal. Um, but the under cloud access, uh, we actually let you take the subscriptions that are on premise and move them up into a cloud provider. Um, and so uh, we've been able to do this with Amazon for for a long time now. And uh, Google um, sees the demand for you know an enterprise Linux distribution um, up on their cloud and wanted to make it easy for folks uh, to use it. So they uh, so they rolled up into the cloud access program, uh, mm-hmm. which is great. Which is well, cool. and and the other thing with cloud access too is that it's uh, a single point of contact for support as well. So it's, it's you know, if you have yeah, a problem right, yeah. with RHEL, um, it doesn't matter whether it's running on AWS or on Google Compute Engine or running on VMware inside your own data center or on top of Rev, um, you can call Red Hat and we can, you know, we it's one throat to choke 
there, uh, which is which is great too. Instead of finger pointing or or it's like I got to escalate to you know within the support organization of a cloud provider and then to and you're isolated from Red Hat, you can have this direct relationship. Well, and and it also in allows. Yeah, as a as an end user, allows you to have some consistency across your environments, right? So you don't have to have one patch regime for RHEL and another for whatever Debian and another for CentOS, another for Ubuntu or you know whatever it is. Um, it allows you to standardize on Red Hat Enterprise Linux, so all your folks know exactly how a server works, um, no matter you know if it's on premise or off premise or or what have you. Um, it's that uh, the the efficiency from from standardizing. Um, is is really something that a lot of people don't realize, um, mm -hmm. or they realize yeah. until they don't realize until yeah. it's too late. And and you know what? The other thing that I like about with the whole cloud computing thing is that when one big cloud provider makes a move, um, somebody else always does. Like it's it it like never ends. You know, it's it's like a poker game of you know they're trying to uh, outbid each other and all that. And then um, Amazon, yeah, uh, they just did. Uh, uh, have a DOD provisional authorization for all their um, uh, um, AWS regions in the United States, so they could do some security impact levels one and two. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Which is basically like the public stuff, right? Um, so if a DOD agency wants to run their website up on AWS, they now have like four or five regions they can run in, um, which is great. It's mm -hmm. absolutely fantastic. Um, and almost definitely going to be cheaper than running in something like a disadec, right? Um, so that's very cool. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah, and then the other part too is that they don't have to worry. You know, I think a lot of times people have this notion that it's like, oh, if I'm use if I want to use if I'm in the government and I got to use um, AWS, I have to put it in GovCloud, and that's not necessarily the case. Um, you know, you can use other regions, uh, mm -hmm. and that's that depending upon what the impact level is. Yep, that's right. That's right. So, what do you think, Dave? I mean, with the, these cloud providers are getting more and more, uh, let's say, competent, and they're obviously making um, gestures towards enterprise workloads. Right? It's not just kind of traditional scale-out website, you know, Ruby on Rails apps that they're operating. Like now, they're they're obviously gunning for um, for real kind of traditional data center workloads. And there's a lot of like hand wringing in the industry. I mean, you got get an article here. Um, uh, from GigaOM uh, talking about this, the, uh, this idea that the, we're definitely going through not just a technical shift, but also like a cultural shift um, in how applications are put together, mm -hmm. um, the role of the systems administrator. Um, and anyway, a lot of hand-wringing about the idea of, uh, well, maybe sysadmins are going to be extinct, right? Maybe we're not going to need sysadmins anymore because we've got the cloud. You know, it's like, oh, people aren't going to know how to cable uh, and rack and stack some servers and all that because it's all outsourced to the cloud and everything. Mm -hmm. And um, and to me, I, I, you know, I almost think it reminds me of back when I was in school and they're, you know, they're like, oh, we can't use calculators in school because, you know, the people will use them or, um, you know, and it's like, you know, they should learn on a slide rule because that's that's, you know, because what, what happens if they don't have a calculator? Um, you know, they should, you know, and, and to me, I think that. The, the thinking is changing and, uh, you know, and pe people need to change and look at things differently. Um, like even in like nowadays, like um, with virtualization, like we were talking about, it's like if you want to try something out, um, you spin up a virtual machine. You don't like, you know, find a server and do the acquisition and all that. And, um, you know, and, and you're much more nimble and, and the expectation is to be a lot more nimble. And I, I think that that is ultimately going to lead to a good thing, you know, or, you know, the other way to think about it is going back to, you know, turn of the century is like, Oh, well, if we get our electricity from an electric provider, nobody's going to know how to work a diesel generator, um, you know, to run my factory. And, yeah. you know, how, how can I hire somebody? And, and, you know, you reach that point where it's like, well, the people that know how to run that stuff actually work for the power company. Yeah. Um, and it's just cheaper to you know get it from from them, and and you only need to um, use a diesel generator whenever it's an emergency. Um, and and I wonder, like, do you think we'll we'll eventually be to that point from a, a cloud computing standpoint that it's going to be um, like you you'll have this this uh, strange priesthood of of people that uh, like a small minority know how to like put a server in in a rack and efficiently uh, you know architect data centers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. I mean, well, like, because skills, time, and attention are all finite, right? It's a sum zero game. Um, I can learn how to program Ruby. 
um, or I can know how to successfully run a cotton farm. Um, and I can't necessarily do both. I, again, like my skills, time, attention, those are all finite. Um, I have to put my focus somewhere. Um, and outsourcing some of these kind of traditional sysadmin skills to the cloud providers, like racking, stacking, stuff you're talking about, um, that is increasingly, that's like more low-skilled um, and frankly less interesting work than figuring out how to run a large-scale operation. Um, and if I'm a sysadmin, I want to focus on that much more interesting problem. I can do a lot more work and make things run a lot better by focusing my skills, time, and attention on that part of the problem rather than running power to the servers. So I think, I mean, on net, I think it's a, it's a much better, uh, much better kind of division of labor, right? Um, and it, this is kind of the traditional kind of move towards commoditization. This is how it works, right? Commodit when things become commoditized like servers have, um, it just becomes, they become less interesting, they become boring, and they become so predictable and repeatable um, that you can A, automate it, um, and B, begin to kind of concentrate responsibility for it with someone else who's, who is happy to make money doing it at, a, at scale. Um, and that frees you up to go do other stuff. Right? I don't run my own diesel generator if I don't have to. Yeah, and then the money you save, you could hire more developers. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, just yeah. so. Yeah. Um, so, but what's interesting is that the other side to this is that kind of underlying both the articles that we that we link to in the show notes and, and underlying this discussion is this assumption that um, everyone is moving to cloud, right? Uh, that cloud is, is becoming inevitable. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a government CIO uh, was on Twitter um, who's, who basically said the, what I think is the truth, which is that, especially in government, uh, we talk a lot about cloud, but what we're actually doing in most cases is just consolidation, right? Um, a lot mm -hmm. of moves to cloud are not really moves towards a cloud computing model. Um, it's really just moving towards a kind of, it's kind of halfway there, right? It's like a kind of a more automated outsourced data center, um, and so you get yes. some of the nice stuff around cloud, uh, but it's not so different uh, from a technical or a contractual point of view that it's going to be kind of upsetting to whatever kind of, you know, incumbencies we have, um, which I think is really interesting. Do you, mm -hmm. do you, do you find this is true, Dave? Um, Cause I, I certainly do. I, you know, there's some pockets of like good um, stories for cloud, you know, workloads moving to cloud or cloud deployments. Uh, but the vast majority of the work, the, even if it's labeled cloud is actually, at least from my point of view, is really just like a plain vanilla data center consolidation um, and really not all that different than the stuff mm -hmm. we've been doing for the last 10 years. It's just slightly different tools. Yeah, and, and maybe it depends upon how you define cloud. Um, and you know, maybe people will call it a cloud just because it's a, you know, that, that's the right marketing thing or it makes it sound cooler or more high-tech than it is. But to me, is it if it if it gives you these efficiencies, that's great. So a good example, I think, would be uh, mail.mil, right? Mm -hmm. So right. it's you know it's instead of all of the different DoD agencies running their own mail servers and uh, you know and and uh, mail exchanges and and all that stuff, um, they let DISA do that for them. Um, is it working in a cloud? Um, who knows? But to the the person, the the non-DISA person that is getting that mailbox, they don't know, they don't care, and to them, it's software as a service, right? It's whether it is a, a quote unquote cloud or not, um, it's a software that's being provided them uh, to them as a service. Whether it's running on uh, virtualized infrastructure or bare metal or whatever, it's it's opaque and it's abstracted away from them, um, and they're just given a mailbox, and and that's that's great. I, I think that's a good thing. Um, yeah. And you know whether you define that as a cloud or, or a consolidation, um, it's it's uh, uh, two ways to describe goodness. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's true to an extent, but I think you're uh, I think we also see RFIs and RFPs from agencies which which ask for like we want as an example we want a mail cloud that mail cloud should include X number of Xenon processors holding X amount of storage <laughs> running these licenses which will provide right um, and, and what they've described is like is a colo arrangement right um, and it's uh, you know once you start specifying speeds and feeds for uh, the underlying hardware, um, or asking, you know, we will be providing the equipment, um, then it's not a cloud. Like that's not, you know, there's nowhere near a cloud. Uh, that's just a consolidation, um, 
to a certain degree, it is a matter of semantics, you know, who cares whether we call it cloud or not. Um, but I think when that happens, it's a lost opportunity, right? Um, because when you move to an actual software as a service or infrastructure as a service or platform as a service, uh, you have a tremendous opportunity to kind of change the way that you're working. Um, and you lose that opportunity if you kind of abuse, if you abuse the tools that cloud can give you. Or the other way to look at it is that it's even a colo and then you call it a cloud, it's a step in the right direction on a longer journey to get you to uh, something that is totally cloud-based. But but eventually you do need to have a lot of abstraction and it needs to be very opaque between the, the cloud provider and the, the end user. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's certainly the ideal. This is a kind of a clumsy, maybe maybe clumsy segue into um, the next thing we wanted to talk about, which was that if you are an agency who is interested, or if you're a nonprofit, um, or if you're an open source project um, who wants to benefit from all the stuff that we're talking about, this this layer of abstraction and being able to outsource a whole bunch of the infrastructure to someone who knows what they're doing, um, you can do so for uh, basically for free uh, on OpenShift. And this is Bob Kazdemba uh, uh, turned us on to this. OpenShift is now offering free resources to nonprofits, uh, open source projects, uh, educational institutions. Um, so they can, if you know, if money was a concern for moving their stuff onto the OpenShift platform, uh, they don't have to worry about that anymore because we'll, uh, we'll we'll give you stuff for free. Yeah, yeah, that's really exciting. Yeah, which is very cool, especially for open source projects, yeah. right? Um, where you know, so, and I've stood up open source projects in the past where I was like, okay, well, I gotta go to, I gotta go stand up a server and then set up the web, set up the website and then set up the forums and the ba, 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 and GitHub takes care of some of that for me. But, um, uh, running that stuff on a platform as a service definitely makes, definitely makes a difference. Um, because it, because if you're a nonprofit or if you are an educational organization, um, you don't want to be worrying about a lot of those underlying details. You just want to run Moodle, right? Um, or, you know, you just want to run WordPress and this is perfect for that. So, so you found a customer that we like. Yeah, yeah. So actually, uh, NASA um, has been a longtime customer of Red Hat, and uh, someone found on the Reddit, uh, on the Linux uh, subreddit, uh, somebody posted a photo of the mm -hmm. NASA Launch Control Center uh, in the like in the firing room, like where they press mm -hmm. the button to fire the rockets. Uh, and nice. lo and behold, like yeah. like the nerds that we are, you look on the screen and you try and figure out what OS they're running, and sure enough, they're running Red Hat Linux. Well, they they said Red Hat Linux, but it, it looked like RHEL six to me. You think it was RHEL six? I th see. I thought it was. I thought it was Red Hat Linux. I thought it looked like an old version of RHEL. Mm -hmm. and I guess it's impossible to know. Which is reassuring. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Hopefully, the NASA Launch Control Center firing room is not running a twelve year old copy of Linux. So, Dave, I, another a podcast I listened to uh, mentioned this tool that looks really interesting for collaboration. Uh, it's kind of this mashup between like. Google Wave and IRC hmm. and Twitter. It's called Slack.com. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Uh, anyway, I, I don't want to. I haven't used it extensively, but it's uh, it's it's really interesting, mostly because it's a collaboration tool that actually uses a lot of the remote APIs on services that you're likely to use. So, mm. if you are in Slack and you mention a GitHub issue it is actually, it will give you a little link and maybe an illustration of that issue over on GitHub uh, by interrogating the GitHub servers, um, which makes for like a much richer kind of conversational experience. Um, anyway, it looks totally interesting. So mm -hmm. slack.com, um, I encourage folks to take a look at it because it looks really, really cool. But that got me on this kick, uh, especially with all this free time on my hands. Um, he said, joking. Uh, <laughs> that um, well, this was an opportunity with a month off. It was an opportunity for me to kind of look at how I was kind of managing information and how it comes how it comes to me, and then how I manage it when it arrives. Um, and obviously, email. We've talked about that a lot in the past. Mm -hmm. um, I took another look at uh, RSS feed readers, which I still rely on heavily. Um, I took a look at Newsblur, uh, which is open source and like very well developed. Uh, that looks really, and actually probably the closest to like the the late great Google Reader. Um, but then I, I was, but as you know, I use RSS to email. Um, so every RSS item that shows up in my feed actually shows up as an email to me, um, which just works really nicely with my workflow. But I, I, I continue to be nervous about the fact that I'm 
<laughs> it's a, it's frankly kind of janky. Like I'm running a Python script in a cron job. Um, you know, I feel like it could be a little, have a little bit more spit and polish. Um, <laughs> and so I, uh, I went looking for somebody who was offering this as a service, maybe had a nice web GUI on it or what have you. And I found blog trotter, um, which does exactly what I was asking for. Um, you pay them a little bit of money and they will email you RSS items uh, as they show and up. And it'll run that Python script for you. <laughs> it'll run that Python script for me. Yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, that looked pretty cool. Um, <laughs> and then I was, I was uh, and so that got me, and then, you know, you go further down the rabbit hole when you get on kind of research projects like this. And then I started looking at like, okay, well, now that I'm reading all these emails, you know, or uh, reading my RSS feeds, um, the way I handle them, the way I process them now, I've gotten into this groove where um, the links are organized around how I'm going to use them. And so, uh, so for instance, I have, mm -hmm. uh, and it's mostly around Etherpad, right? So I have an Etherpad for the show, and I have an Etherpad for internal meet each of the internal meetings that uh, I either run or contribute to. And so that way, I have. Um, I just build up these links over the course of a week or, you know, every day. And then when that meeting shows up, I have all the links or, you know, all my thoughts around this stuff is kind of organized in one place. And that's proved to be pretty successful. Um, I found that if I didn't organize the stuff around a particular event, uh, which has a kind of a built-in deadline, um, mm -hmm. I would kind of lose interest, right? Because there's no reason to go back and look for it. Like if I take a bunch of links that I'm interested in uh, or want to talk to somebody about and throw them in Remember the Milk, I have no reason to go back and look at them. Um, so I, so they mm -hmm. just kind of disappear into that system. Um, but having them organized by meeting or organized by event actually forces me to kind of revisit them each time. So I found that really, really useful. But I was like, there's got to be a better way than Etherpad, right? Because uh, again, janky. Um, and also hard to do when you're mobile. Um, yes. And so I started looking at Pinboard, mm -hmm. uh, which I know a bunch of geeks I respect take a look at Pinboard. But Pinboard, I just can't figure it out. I just can't. I don't know how I would be able to. I don't know if I would be able to use Pinboard to do something like that. I don't know, Dave. How do you handle? How do you organize stuff like this? How do like if you have like a bunch of news items that you want to talk about or technical articles that you want to discuss with somebody? How do you how do you queue them up for later? Yeah. So some of them, I, I do it a bunch of ways. So it's like for a lot of the RSS stuff that I want to follow up on, I will, you know, star it or, you know, you know, save it for later and all that. And then it's like, I'll, I'll hose it out every once in a while. Um, um, and then sometimes hosing it out means moving it to an etherpad. So it's like, I'll put it in the etherpad for the show. So once I see an article, like I may be reading an article in my RSS reader, that I will star on my mobile device, and then I'm when I get online and on the VPN, I will I will transcribe that URL over to the Etherpad for us to talk about on the show, and then I'll unstar it in the RSS reader and sort of clear that out. Um, or there may be other things too, like like I'll I'll use Remember the Milk uh, to set up events uh, based upon a date, uh, saying that oh well we're, when you're at the Red Hat Summit you want to do blah blah blah, and and I'll put links in or. Um, oh, double check to make sure I got the frequent flyer miles for a certain flight or something, um, and I'll do that, and and that that helps. But still, I I I think it's interesting, like what you said about that uh, Slack dot com, and um, you know what piqued my interest there is it how multiple services can be integrated. Um, the thing that I hate is whenever you have yet another feed that you have to follow, mm -hmm. um, it's just not fun. You know, to to have to keep track of all that stuff, it's like to me, it's it's overload. And yeah. if there's a way that instead of having like another feed inside of uh, you know a Twitter you know a, a Twitter like feed to interface with Twitter or interface with with whatever, I think that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's a more consolidation. I don't need more tools. I need fewer tools. Right. Um, I I don't. Yeah, I don't need another inbox if <laughs> if I could help it. Yeah, totally, totally. Anyway, well, if, if, if folks have ideas for this, uh, please uh, send us an email or, or add comment or comment on the show page um, and let us know how you're handling this because um, it, it seems like a problem that everyone should have, but very few people talk about, right? Um, and a lot of the problem and a lot of the solutions too are extremely specific to a particular tool. Um, so you have to like give your life over to whatever, pinboard or give your life over to remember the milk in order to make it work. Um, and if that's what we have to do, I guess that's fine. But it seems mm -hmm. like there should be kind of 
uh, a sensible kind of process-based way of, of handling this problem. I just haven't figured out what it is yet. So anyway, I'm interested how other people have solved this. So what's new in book club, Dave? Oh, yeah. So I've been reading a lot of books lately. Um, well, actually, it's been audiobooks because, uh, you know, travel and all that. Um, I, I love using the Overdrive app uh, to sign up books from the library, and then it pulls down MP3s, and then I can uh, listen to them at 2x speed with uh, with Astro Player. Um, and so one of the books that uh, I enjoyed was uh, The Emperor of All Maladies, uh, which is uh, a biography of cancer. Um, and um, it's a really good book, and uh, it you know talks about the history of cancer and all that, and uh, um, it, it was really good. And uh, Ken Burns of you know PBS documentary mm-hmm. fame is sure. working on a six-hour uh, documentary on it. It's coming in 2015. Wow! And one of the more notable things that I learned from it was uh, um, the Pap test, right? For uh, to check for cervical cancer screening. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, in. It was come up by uh, George Papanakalu um, in 1928, and um, the way he came up with it was by studying the menstrual cycles of guinea pigs. How does he come by the idea of like, you know what I'm going to study? You know, well, well, I'm interested in menstrual cycles and I'm interested in guinea pigs. How can I put these two things together? I I, I just had this like this black and white image of of like like two doctors in 1928 in a lunchroom. Uh, smoking know, lucky strikes smoking cigarettes yeah you know it's a, i don't know what do you want to do and, and they're like well you know we did rats last week and i, I got an order of guinea pigs you know and that's i i don't know how they uh, you know and and then then it's like i realized that the guinea pigs have menstrual cycles and it was like oh i did not know that and 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 I'm really reluctant to pick up a guinea pig to begin with because like underneath they're you know it's like they their belly drags around in the cage, which picks up all kind of other stuff. So now I'm like really, you know, germaphobic about, uh, <laughs> about picking a guinea pig. Yeah. I'll pet their head and everything. And when, when I feed them, but, uh, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't know they, they, um, they, they do that. Um, but what do I know? That's why I went into computers and not, uh, I, I was never good at biology. Um, <laughs> just, it blew my mind. Another book I enjoyed was the the immortal life of Henrietta Henrietta Lacks. I don't I don't know if you've ever heard of her. No, no, I haven't. Yeah, so it was um, it's it's a great book. Um, and if in in fact, um, you know, you turned me on to Radio Lab, um, and there was a whole episode on um, th- that. You know, if you wanted to listen to that episode, I, I put it in the show notes. Where it was a a lady from the you know the forties and fifties that. Uh, she basically had this form of cancer that, um, you know, typically with cells, uh, they they have a thing like cells will reproduce to the point where um, they only rep- reproduce so many times. And then after that, they just sort of like die of old age mm-hmm. where these cancer cells just simply would not die. Um, so they would they would reproduce and then they would reproduce again and again and again. And, and, and so it's like they would so they they were basically they got this lady's uh um her tumor you know her cancer cells and like there were all kinds of of discoveries made because of of her cancer cells and um you could order a vial of her cells through mail order and and they like blew the cells up in uh in atomic bomb testing they put it in uh, they put her cells into outer space and all that um but it wound up that that lady never saw a cent uh, from any of that and it was it was basically like well you know if we take your cells as a sample it's sort of like you're, you're basically throwing it away and and it's and if the hospital decides to take your tissues and and come up with a cure for it it's considered their property um, wow. so it was an interesting uh, patients rights sort of discussion there too um, where it's like you know the family now is you know they're poor they could barely get health care but you know the drug companies are making millions of dollars based upon the discoveries from her cells. Um, so, um, but anyhow, it's it's a good uh, book uh, for um, you know it's it was really interesting. I I really enjoyed it. Wow. Uh, huh. And then the last book that I had was for those getting on uh, motorcycles um, as, as spring approaches. A good book I've been enjoying is uh, Proficient Motorcycling. So, it's a you know for me it's like I, I forget a lot of things over the winter. Um, and, and it's, it's, I almost want to make it an annual habit where I, I sort of flip through it and read it and, uh, 
sort of get your head right um, mm -hmm. whenever you get on a motorcycle because it, it can be so dangerous and you know you, you got to be focused and, and thinking about things and um, and and this book is really it was really written really well uh, very conversational sort of like a, a paternal fatherly sort of or like older uncle sort of thing you know that's that's guiding you through all this so is it it written really well I, I really enjoyed his writing style excellent well, that's great well, uh, what do you say, Dave? I got to go take care of my baby. Um, you want to wrap this up? Yeah, you got to change the diapers. <laughs> yeah, I got many diapers to change. Yeah. So if if people need to go get the the baby pictures and and uh, uh, they want to learn more about guinea pig menstrual cycles, uh, where where do they need to go? Yeah, they can go to uh, dgshow.org. Uh, the brand new, all new. All singing, all dancing, dgshow.org. Uh, that's D as in Dave, G as in Gunner, show.org. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Gunner, and thanks everybody for listening.